It was a summer day, 10 years ago, and Carol uh, and I were fixing up an apartment that we were about to move into. Yeah, we've done a lot of that, <laughs> moving around. Uh, and it was a beautiful day with a blue sky, not quite as warm as today, but a beautiful day. And we were painting the walls, so uh, we had our windows wide open. And then, in the middle of that blue day, came the sound of thunder. And we looked out of the window, and we were puzzled because the day still looked as nice and calm as before. So we talked to each other, we commented on the weird sound, but what else could it be? So we just kept on painting. We knew nothing. But not far from us, at Riyerinskvartala, the government buildings downtown, there was fear. And soon, further south, down the fjord, there was fear and despair at an island. It was the 22nd of July of 2011. It wasn't long before a neighbor told us to check the news, and we started to hear about what was going on. A white supremacist on a nationalistic agenda had set up a bomb at the government building downtown, less than three kilometers from where we used to live. And he then headed to the island of Utøya, where the youth wing of the Workers' Party had a youth camp going on, and he started shooting, literally hunting young people down, one by one. The sheer intensity of evil and hatred to fuel such an act was appalling. Suddenly, we needed to account for the fact that it was right here. Not on TV somewhere else, right here in the middle of us, spilling out on the corners of the streets that we walk and live in. And then there was something else. There was the other thing that we needed to face and we needed to account for. There was the fear. The fear. The fear of being spotted, of being found behind that tree. The fear of being shot. The fear of finding your friend lifeless on the ground the fear of not knowing if your child or friend made it off the island. But then again, it wasn't really our fear, was it? For many of us who weren't directly and personally connected to what happened on that day, well, we were perhaps tempted to just move on with life avoid a few blocks of the downtown area, and add this event to the list of world fears that aren't ours and therefore we need not concern ourselves with. I wasn't willing to let go just that easily. Uh, many of us weren't. But still, it was hard to grasp. It was hard to grasp. I have never experienced anything even close to what those young people and their loved ones experienced on that day. So what was, I, what was I to do with it? 
What was I supposed to do with it? How? I've had a similar sense of distance, almost like a restraint when reading some of the Psalms. We are spending time with the book of Psalms now in the summer, and some of the Psalms are, are easy. <laughs> they, they, they are, we, we find it easy to tell them, to listen to them, to speak them, to pray them. But some of the Psalms, they, they seem to describe or speak from realities that seem so distant from my own that it's difficult to relate to. And today's Psalm, Psalm 56, was for many years one of those for me. One of those psalms that seemed to speak from where I couldn't go. I want to read it for you. And as we've been doing, I want to invite you to just listen it, listen to it, not read it. If you can't resist, it's 56. You can always pop it up on your phone. But these are works of oral poetry that were listened to and chanted and, and heard uh, that engages our body and our sensibilities a bit differently. So I want to invite you to just listen. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back When I call for help, by this I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. I I don't have enemies that I know of. I don't have adversaries pursuing me. Nobody's conspiring to take my life as far as I can tell. So what was I to do with this psalm? This fear that the psalmist speaks of is a fear that I don't know. I don't know the psalmist's experience, the experience of the one writing the psalm. Now, one way of dealing with this is to try and understand the context of the psalm. Try to understand the circumstances a bit better. So that maybe I can understand a bit more of this fear. Where is the psalmist speaking from? What is the situation he finds himself in? Perhaps if I understand that better, I can can somehow relate to this. 
Well, in the case of Psalm 56, that exercise seems possible to some extent. Uh, this psalm is marked as a psalm of David, which means it is made in the tradition of David, in the court of David, maybe by David himself. Good chances on this particular one, actually. And it has a, rub a rubric indicating the situation that gave rise to this particular song, because this is a song. And the rubric says, when the Philistines had seized him in Goth. Now, if we track the story of David as it is told in the books of First and Second Samuel, well, this would most likely refer to an episode that is described in First Samuel chapter 21. But we need a bit of a wider context for this to make any sense of at all. Very wide. We're not going to go into any details here. But all of this happens in the beginnings of the period of the monarchy in Israel. So after they had gone out of Egypt, established themselves in the land. They have a period with only judges. Uh, up to then, they had not had kings. But then after insisting with God for a king, and despite the warnings of prophet Samuel, they get a king. They get Saul. And Saul was strong. He was athletic. He was good-looking, but he sucked as a king. It's terrible. He messed up in assorted ways. <laughs> so God rejected him as king and had Samuel anoint David to be king instead. And as these things tend to go, Saul was not exactly, exactly happy or eager to lose his throne. So after taking David into his service for a while, first as a musician and then as a soldier and commander in his armies after the whole business with Goliath, uh, he eventually, Saul eventually started seeing David as a threat. And from that point on, as a result of that, David spent several years on the run, on the run from Saul. And in that context, fleeing from Saul, he ended up going to Achish, king of Gath. But they recognized David there. They recognized him from his military campaigns. So that now David was in real danger of being seen as a threat by Ashish. So David, in the word of 1 Samuel, was very much afraid of Ashish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. <laughs> I got to give it to David. Right? You have to be creative uh, to come up with that kind, of, that kind of solution, right? And you got to be brave. But it works. Ashish thinks he's insane and has him sent away from his presence. So David escapes. And that's what we know of the story. So now, I know more of the context of the psalm, as far as I can tell. Uh, and more of David's fear then. But it's still, not, it's still not exactly something that I can personally relate to. Now, there's one more context uh, to take into account here and that I think is important to take into account. And that is the context not from which the psalm was written, but for which it was written. This was written as a song, a song to be sung by the people of Israel and a song that would become a part of their liturgical sound, songbook. 
of the songs they sing in the temples and pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And for Israel, David's story was never just a story. Because David was more than just a person. For Israel, David was an archetype for the people. He was the archetype of the God-chosen king. The king anointed by God, who follows the voice of God and leads the people. The challenge, though, is that David was many things. He was a shepherd. He was an artist. He was a worshiper, unashamed worshiper. He was someone who gathered to himself the disgruntled in society and gave them a belonging. David was also a violent man in a violent world. Violent and greedy to the point of raping another woman's wife and then killing him to cover the tracks. He was also pretty much a disaster as a father. There was a little bit of fighting inside his family. Now, when a person like David is used as an archetype in a song to be sung by the people, we need to ask what dimension of David the psalm is inviting the people to relate to, to aspire to, to mirror themselves on. Is it the commander of the armies, the man of violence, asking that God in his anger bring the nations down? And I think it would be naive to argue that Israel hasn't repeatedly chosen that image to mirror themselves on. And that Christian empires and empire-minded Christians haven't insistently done the same thing. But that is not what Psalm 56 invites us into. The poetical emphasis of Psalms 56 is on David's fear and on the movement that he does within that fear. When I am afraid, I put my trust in God, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And then again, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, and am not afraid, what can mere mortals do to me? This the psalm repeats, and that's what we are invited into. Not to Goth, not to David, but into a movement towards God in the midst of fear to a prayerful movement of hope and trust. For all his faults, David was someone who deeply trusted in God, who repeatedly chose to trust in God and dwell in the hope he had in God. That in no way justifies his violence and all the other stuff that he did and is often used to justify that other stuff is not what we are being invited into in Psalm 56. We are invited into this movement within fear, a prayerful movement to trust God. 
David is still afraid. His declaration of, I am not afraid, is an expression of faith and trust in God. The psalm goes, when I am afraid, I put my trust and am not afraid. When I am afraid, I put my trust in God and am not afraid. It's a paradox of faith that he chooses to live in. And I can start finding my place in the psalm. I don't know David's fear. I haven't felt it. But I know the movement. I know the movement. The call for God in the midst of fear and choosing the paradox of faith. In my fear, in God, I trust and I'm not afraid. And once I found this and dwelt in those verses, I found that there is more, more mystery, more presence in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. There is more. There is more. For Jesus Christ, of whom John so speaks and sings, Jesus Christ knew what it was to be persecuted by prideful men intent on killing him. Men who twisted his words, conspired and lurked, hoping to take his life. Yet Christ was not a man of violence, but a man of sacrifice and suffering. A man of grace who lifted his arms not to strike, but to embrace. There is more because shaped by this revelation, John so skillfully expresses, it is the living word that we praise. In him we trust and in him we take refuge in our faith and in our fear and faith we grasp and gasp the words of, I am not afraid. Most mysterious and wonderful of all, however, is not that our movement in fear is, not, is now to Christ. No. Christ is not merely an extension of the experience of the psalmist. He is an altogether different way of expressing it and stepping into it. For Jesus called Christ was and is God himself stepping into the reality of our fear. 
a God who joins us in our fear. Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll, says the psalmist. And there is another possible translation. Record my misery, put my tears in your wineskin. Put my tears in your wineskin. This is the God incarnate, the Word made flesh. God who doesn't write down our pain from a distance, but steps into the middle of our particular darkness close enough to gather our tears in his wineskin and know their taste because they are the tears of someone he loves. To this God, to Christ, I come in my own particular fears. And I know that he knows it from the closeness of within. And now, now this is my psalm. Now this is my psalm. Yet not only mine, it is ours, it is yours. For your fear, your fear, Christ also knows. Your tears, he also knows on the texture of his own skin. Your tears, he would also gather in his wineskin, wiping them carefully with his pierced hands. We are easily despaired in our own fears and easily insensible to the fears of others, the fears we don't know from within. But Christ bridges our fear in his grace and in the unity of his love and sacrifice, turning our sensibilities towards each other guiding our desire for vengeance towards a call for justice, calling us again and again to walk before God in the light of life. This call, this welcoming place is all the more powerful and necessary in a world where there is much, after all, that mortals can do to us that we can do to each other. We kill and we despise. We exclude and we hate. We wield Holy Scripture as weapons of war and weapons of war as if they were holy. We crucify and we betray for 30 pieces of temple coins. We profile and we degrade we judge and we mark those others. I, there is much that mortals can do to mortals. Much fear that comes with all of that. We can deal and we can revel in darkness. We can deal death even but we can't stop the true light that breaks death. 
We can't stop the true light that breaks death. We can't stop God from stepping into it all and giving hope and life to those in whom, whom in him take refuge. What can mere mortals do to you? They can despise you for the color of your skin, think they are superior because of their ethnicity, but they can't shut the light. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. In our fear we trust and are not afraid. What can mere mortals do to you? They can treat you as less because of your gender, but they can't shut the light. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. In our fear, we trust and are not afraid. What can mere mortals do to you? They can make bombs and they can shoot a bullet through your very heart, but they can't shut the light of life. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. In our fear, we trust and are not afraid. What can mere mortals do to you? They can isolate you. They can make you feel insecure in your own body. They can bully you. They can despise you for your faith or for your struggle to believe in anything. They can lie to you. They can disregard you for your old age or ignore you for being too young. They can allow you to die of poverty or disease for their own greed. But they can't shut the light of life. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In our fear we trust and we are not afraid. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't know your fear. I don't know the particular shades of the darkness that haunts your dreams. But I do believe that we can meet in Christ. I do believe that we can respect and even love each other even if we may never fully understand each other's fears. I believe that we can learn to not be the ones who make fears worse and more abundant. Because I believe in grace. I believe in grace. Christ has delivered us from death and our feet from stumbling, that we may walk before God in the light of life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you there where you are, in your joy and in your fear, in your hope 
and in your despair. May you know that he is with you and may he bring you peace. So go in peace and serve the Lord joyfully.